everyone because they were afraid. Mark begins his brief account of the resurrection with this small detail of three grieving women who bought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus' body. In the Jewish quarters of modern Jerusalem, when the Sabbath ends on a Saturday evening, the shops open again for a short time, like a night market. And in a similar way, ancient shoppers might have found a stall offering silks and embroidered fabrics, another with fruit and herbs, and a third displaying the fragrant spices our women of Easter were looking for. Like those in mourning all over the world, it's sometimes easier to get things done following a death than to think about the gaping hole left when someone we love dies. With purchase in hand, these faithful souls returned home to try to sleep planning to rise at dawn and hurry to the tomb. For now, they could do nothing but wait for the sunrise to usher in a new day. Out of this thickest midnight, who can tell what dawn shall yet arise? Actually, scientists tell us that the sun doesn't really rise, and I'm sure that's not news to you. It's that the Earth spins at 1,000 miles per hour, traveling an orbit of 584 million miles around a star that's about 1 million times the size of our planet. And we, on our spinning planet, are the ones moving in the direction of the sun. And in this case, these women of Easter were also moving in the direction of the Son of God on the way to the tomb, my Lord, was there ever such a morning in the history of the world? Psalm 113 says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. That's every day, every sunrise, again and again and again. All four of our gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of the sunrise at the empty tomb in a slightly different way. Mark provides us with the shortest and probably the earliest version. And most scholars agree that the additional verses at the end of Mark were added later by scribes between the 2nd and 4th centuries, perhaps after the original ending was lost or because they thought Mark's gospel, compared to the others, was incomplete. Whatever the reason, we are left with this brief, unsettling, even discomforting account, which is also strangely compelling, especially in a year when we have often found ourselves unsettled and discomforted, grieving losses and anticipating, even desperately longing for something that feels like new life and resurrection. It all feels so unfinished. Out of the thickest midnight, who can tell what dawn shall yet arise? These three women of Easter, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, go through the Damascus gate, and they are bound for the garden tomb. They're living in a liminal moment, that transition between dark and dawn, walking in their grief. They've come with a plan, a set of rituals they've likely performed before. Because how often are our griefs 
connected and seem to come one right after the other. Their plan is meant both to mark the death of their friend and teacher and to help them begin their mourning process. And the reality of Jesus' death weighs on them as they worry about how they're going to get to the tomb to anoint his body. Who will roll away the huge stone, which would have been four to five feet in diameter and perhaps a foot thick, far too heavy for these women to roll aside? But actually, that turns out to be the least of their worries. It's such a human moment. It's worrying about the wrong things as you just try to make it through the day one step at a time. But then the surprise, the utter surprise that the stone is already rolled away, that the tomb is already open. Archaeologists believe the entrance was no more than three feet high and two feet wide, and the only way to enter was to assume a posture of humility, head bowed, torso bent. Instead of finding a body fragrant with myrrh, they find a young man dressed in white. And Mark tells us they were alarmed just a little bit. If you haven't noticed by now, Mark's gospel is not one in which the followers of Jesus end up looking very good nor triumphant. They are beloved by Jesus to be sure, But they're always misunderstanding, and in these last chapters, there's no glossing over their failures to be loyal, to stay awake, to claim friendship with Jesus, to manage to even anoint his body. And this final scene, which is not the women of Easter joyously running to spread the good news while lilies bloom in their path, but fear and trembling before the mystery. And then, running away. I find Mark's version of the resurrection so compelling because it feels so familiar. Whatever success these women will have later as the first ones to share the message, I have seen the Lord, we do well to pause for a moment here, just after sunrise, Spices in hand because it's the only thing they have to offer. We pause with them at the empty tomb, faced with the unsettling mystery when they don't know what in the world the next right thing to do is. In Mark's version, we're reminded that Easter comes to us again and again, even if we don't know what to do or what to make of God's resurrection ways. Again and again, the sun rises, and some days, that is enough. Preacher Diane Roth claims that in the Gospel of Mark, failure is a more relevant word than triumph. The failure of the disciples, of the women, our failure, my failure. She says, my failure is not something I want to be reminded of, but it keeps coming back to haunt me anyway. I fail to say the right word at the right time, to believe without doubt, to inspire a congregation, to be the person I should be, to be triumphant. And among other things, that's what I come face to face with in Mark's story of the resurrection. 
the disciples fail to understand Jesus. The women run away and say nothing to anyone. And Jesus rises from the dead, but no one sees him. How is it possible there's even a church around after 2,000 years with all of this failure? And of course, that's exactly the point. We're embedded in this culture that glorifies success and victory, valuing clean houses and meaningful jobs and enriching relationships and exciting travels and smooth life paths and clear futures. But who really lives there? We are honest at least some of the time. We're far more acquainted with being unsettled, discomforted, wandering in a daze, tired and numb, turning away from the good news. But can this Easter gospel find us here, where we really are? Can it speak to us of divine reversal? The message of Jesus all along, that the first will be last and the last will be first? That those who save their life will lose it and those who lose their life will save it? That the Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, and blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. Jesus, who bid us become like children and said whatsoever we do to the least of these, we do unto him. Jesus, who reversed the power of sin on the cross and whose resurrection overturned the finality of death itself. Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, descended into hell, and now sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is God's triumph, to disrupt our embedded cultural assumptions and surprise us with what dawn shall yet arise. Easter is a day for us to shake off the cynicism and regret and soul-crushing obsession with our own triumphs and stand in front of this holy mystery for once without words, without excuses. Because none of the Gospels ask us to explain how Jesus was raised from the dead or to prove that it happened. That would be too much trust in our intellectual and spiritual capacity Instead, we are told repeatedly not to be afraid, to behold, to trust in the mystery, and that the risen Jesus goes ahead of us, and it's our job to follow him and, and to tell about it if we can. In the words of Reverend Nadia Boltz-Weber, God simply keeps reaching down into the dirt of humanity and resurrecting us from graves we dig for ourselves through our violence, our lies, our selfishness, our arrogance, and our addictions. And God keeps loving us back to life over and over. Again and again, God keeps loving us back to life. And all throughout Lent, we've been using the symbol of the ampersand to remind ourselves that again and again, suffering and brokenness find us. We doubt again and we lament again and we mess up again. And that again and again, the story of Jesus on the cross repeats itself. Every time lives are taken unjustly, every time the powerful choose corruption and violence, every time individuals forget how to love. And there are times we say, again? How long, O oh Lord? 
And yet in the midst of the chaos, God offers the sacred refrain, I choose you, I love you, I will lead you to restoration, I will go ahead of you. Again and again, God breaks the cycle and offers a new way forward, though it so often is to be found through and not around the unknown and the unfamiliar and the thickest midnight and the wilderness. I love the scriptures about sunrise in the Bible. And there's a verse in the Old Testament book of Numbers which talks about they journey from Obeth and pitch their tent at Ijabirium in the wilderness before Moab toward the sun rising. And if you take out all the unfamiliar place names, it says, and they journeyed in the wilderness toward the sun rising. Because going through the wilderness is part of everyone's story. Percy Ainsworth wrote, one could understand if the wilderness experiences of life were just confined to those who might seem to have merited such a discipline, though in that case the wilderness would be pretty populous, but so often it is the godly, the spiritually earnest, whose faces are turned toward the way that is desert, but heading toward the sun to lay the waste and sin of your life at the foot of Christ's cross, to lean on that infinite mercy that's manifest in him, a mercy that remembers your needs and forgets your sin and find in all your trouble God's message to your soul. This is to journey in the wilderness, but toward the sun rising. Toward the sun rising. One way I try to walk in God's light is to spend time in prayer and meditation. And one of the people I've been reading lately is Thomas Merton, and he has this beautiful little sentence about sunrise. He says, sunrise is an event that calls forth solemn music in the very depths of our nature, as if one's whole being had to attune itself to the cosmos and praise God for the new day. Praise God in the name of all the creatures that ever will or will be. I look at the rising sun and feel that now upon me falls the responsibility of seeing what all my ancestors have seen in the Stone Age and even before it, praising God before me. Whether or not they praise God then for themselves, they must praise God now in me. And when the sun rises, each one of us is summoned by the living and the dead to praise God. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. So today I have a very simple ask. Find a sunrise. Send me a picture if you can, or send it to someone who can't get out to see it. Go with someone you love, even if that is just you and Jesus. Give yourself enough time to get there before the dawn. Remember the women of Easter who came prepared for what they thought would be the ritual of death, but turned out to be the power of life itself, unstoppable, eternal, even alarming. And stand quietly there in all your beautiful and raw humanity in front of that mystery and praise God with your whole being because Easter comes to us again and again, even if we don't know what to do, 
what to make of God's resurrection ways. Again and again, the sun rises, and some days, that is enough. In the words of the Beatles, little darlings, it's been a long and lonely winter. Little darlings, it's been years since we've been here. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. And I say, 